So, this is a quick bonus episode of Cognitive Evolution. One of the things that I'm really fascinated with in people's journeys that I haven't talked about as much yet on the show is the books that influence them most. I think it says a lot about a person, which great works they read, which most profoundly impacted the course of their thought. It's also a great opportunity to find things to dig into, which have a relatively high probability of creating some impact in your own thinking. And so with each of my guests on the show uh, in the future, I'm going to ask them about the books they read that most influenced them. And uh, sometimes this will happen in the interview, uh, but sometimes it'll also uh, be something I get from following up with them afterwards since uh, books just uh, don't come up sometimes. But uh, maybe I'll even go back and get some reading lists from my previous guests. We'll see about that. Um, but so this is a portion of my interview with Christoph Koch which didn't really fit into our conversation in the full episode, but I wanted to share anyhow. And he talks about some of the books that most influenced him, uh, the ones that he really thinks are the best reads about consciousness, as well as some of the stuff he read in graduate school and from his advisors. So if you want to see the full list for this and others, you can find it on the podcast section of my website, codycommerce.com slash podcast uh, or in the show notes so as always uh, thank you for listening and here's another excerpt from my conversation with Christoph Koch so there was one last one last thing that I was sort of curious to ask you about uh, if you could uh, maybe give a quick answer to is um, what are the books that have most influenced you or that you would most recommend uh, to a young researcher perhaps someone like myself well, I mean, there's still uh, Francis Crick's book, which is really a beautiful introduction into the problem, The Astonishing Hypothesis, um, which is really a very broad description of brain and brain science. I mean, it's 20 years old, but, but the basics, uh, of course, are, are still as valid as they were two decades ago. Um, you know, outlining the key problems to be addressed. I think it's one of the nicest ones. Um, John Searle has also written a um, very nice introduction into the problem of consciousness. Uh, that's um, New York Review of Books. Um, so those are the ones, typically um, the more recent books I, um, I, I recommend. One of the rather surprising developments to me has been the growing popularity of panpsychism. You know, the belief, the, the very ancient belief um, uh, in Western tradition, but also, of course, in Eastern tradition, Buddhist or, um, tradition, for instance, that consciousness is much more widespread than we like to believe, not only in us and in great apes and in, you know, dogs and cats, but possibly in all biological creatures and possibly even wider than that. Maybe even, uh, you know, simple physical systems may feel like something. This, of course, um, IIT has a lot of... Um, sympathy with this attitude. In fact, IIT makes certain predictions that certainly even single cells that have an amazing complexity completely uh, uncaptured by our current models of single cells because individual neurons or individual, you know, paramecium organism have such vast complexity in terms of their underlying molecular constituency that we've never been able to correctly capture that. And according to IIT, it may well feel like something to be such a very, very simple creatures. So this uh, this position is now very popular, and there are a number of interesting books written about it, um, um, about panpsychism. And so that's a little bit uh, surprising to me. This um, and this development, this large scale rejection 
in in some quarters of sort of the standard um, uh, analytical assumption that sort of metaphysics is dead and that consciousness doesn't really exist or you know is only associated with uh, with humans. Uh, and then is there is there anything maybe in your that you read as a graduate student that really affected you? I know Breitenberg is very uh, famous for his his uh, book Vehicles. Uh, I actually know a lot of sort of my colleagues who have read that early on in their career and were very influenced by that. So is there anything like that that maybe you can remember having read as a early career researcher in you know graduate school or whatever it is? Yeah. So. Um... Valentin Breitenberg was one of my two co-advisors. The other one was Tommy Poggio. And so uh, his first book, which is almost completely unknown, called Textures, um, is about um, um, textures of the brain. It's about neuroanatomy, which was his specialty. It's a beautiful little book that really got me into neuroscience. And then, of course, his books, uh, Vehicles, the one you just mentioned, The Law of Uphill Analysis and Downhill Synthesis, was really quite influential. Um, and again, you can still read it today. It's a, it's a book of great, it's really great. It's a simple metaphor, a little bit like Flatland, you know, Abbott's uh, Flatland, trying to understand, you know, the fourth dimension by appealing to the second and third dimension. And um, uh, the vehicle is a little bit like that, how you can get intelligent behavior out of very simple automata. I don't think it's a good question. I don't think it says anything about consciousness. In fact, I should go back. I don't remember uh, Breitenberg saying anything about consciousness in that book. Huh. I have to go back and look at that. Yes. Then, of course, Schrödinger's What is Life? And Schrödinger later on, of course, also wrote a book, um, a series of essays about the problem of um, mind and, and brain. And he was, uh, he of course articulated this view that consciousness comes prior to physics, or as he says, that phenomenology comes prior to physics. He makes this point that as a physicist, in order to make, uh, uh, you know, statements about the world, like the temperature something is at, or what voltage or currents flow through a particular device, you have to look at uh, instruments and looking at instrument that is a conscious act you have to you know look at where the gauge is you know you have to look at where the measuring device is and so that that requires a conscious being and so he says here we we have this paradoxical situation where we presuppose the existence of consciousness in order in order to um, to formulate our um, our physical laws and how can that be and how can we incorporate consciousness into a larger view of the of the universe, um, a very perceptive uh, statement. Uh, that again, yeah, I've never actually read the the Schrodinger book. That would be interesting to to see. Um, I mean, his most famous book is um, is um, is of course what is life. Um, that that uh, you know influenced um, um, played such a role in. Um, in Francis Crick and in Jim Watson, you know, formulation of the genetic code. Yeah, but, then, then, but, uh, but, uh, but, but uh, Schrodinger also makes this beautiful statement where he says, uh, it's really, without consciousness, he has this quote, something like, the world would remain a play before empty benches, not existing for anybody. That's quite properly speaking, not existing. He makes his point that without consciousness, there isn't anybody to observe the world. So the world literally is like a play. 
perform before empty benches. There isn't anyone there to observe the world if there wouldn't be consciousness. And then I know you have pretty uh, broad appreciation for different kinds of, of art and different, uh, you know, cultural artifacts from our society. Are there any uh, books outside of science that you feel have especially impacted you or that you've felt uh, really emotionally close with? Work of art, yes. The Ring des Nibelung. I mean, if you're talking about the stream of consciousness, so uh, um, William James you know, the father of American psychology, uh, you know, famously gave us a metaphor of uh, the stream or the river of consciousness. Um, if you ever listen to the music of Richard Wagner, you know, which fig- uh, prefigures uh, William James, um, you know, by 30 years or so, he really epitomizes that in a most beautiful way, right? This, uh, the, the, this constant, you know, the, the stream, this auditory soundscape of leitmotifs and different, different people singing superimposed and, and, and love and envy and desire and the need for power and renunciation um, and compassion, all of that interwoven into sort of, you know, this endless stream of music is, is, is overwhelming and the waxing and waning and this, the flowing and the slow and the fast you know, that really describes uh, each of our streams of consciousness is really put into this wonderful, uh, you know, aesthetic um, format that is um, is music. And of course, 30, uh, uh, 50 years later, then uh, you have people like James Joyce that put that in a, in a literary uh, uh, narrative, right? You know, the stream of consciousness, this, uh, this inner monologue, if you've ever read, for instance, Ulysses, right? So... They all epitomize different aspects. They all try to capture different aspects of 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 our mental life. This of this constant, this constant ongoing, um, you know, mixture and gemisch of thoughts and desires and memories and projections into the future and experiences. That is our that is our conscious experience of life itself. Uh, yeah. No. That the. Uh, as your most recent book says, the you know sort of everything you're summing up is a feeling of life itself. So that is what we need to explain. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm.